Shalom, and welcome back to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm Eli Koaz in Tel Aviv. And I'm Evan Gottesman in San Francisco. Eli, you know, we had a little bit of an Eli Evan podcast drought. Not a drought. I mean, we were just on our own schedules. I mean, you know, the the long-distance relationship, the 10-hour time change, it's not easy. We swapped time zones. We can just call it, let's call it a rough patch. Now we're back together. Everything's good. You know, we were working so seamlessly together when Eli was in Vancouver. But you're uh, still doing amazing work. I mean, on Tuesday, you were the hero of the Israel Policy Forum webinar with Israeli journalist Barak Ravid, saving the day as an emergency moderator. Very good job. Thank you, Eli. I mean, you're being very kind for what was really just 15 seconds of action. That was because the signal went out for a moderator due to the hurricane that was going on on the East Coast. So for all of our listeners who are on the East Coast who were affected by that hurricane, I hope that you're doing well. I saw some of the pictures and, you know, on top of COVID and everything else that's going on, we don't need anything else to worry about. So hope everyone's doing well. Definitely wishing everyone well, And of course, we're also thinking about the people of Lebanon and Beirut, where you know, we all saw this huge explosion that happened on Tuesday as well. Right now, it's understood as some improperly stored uh, ammonium nitrate that had been placed in a warehouse at the port of Beirut several years back after it was confiscated from a cargo ship and just left there. And this was, of course, the same chemical that was used in the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, but I think like uh, 2,000 times the quantity that was used in that bombing exploded in uh, this fire that has left uh, thousands and thousands of people homeless, uh, destroyed much of the city of Beirut, um, and it's, it's just really, really horrible. And of course, Lebanon was not in a great position before this, and this does not help. Instead of, yeah, in terms of political stability and a whole other range of issues, but I mean, just the pure power, like the, the power of the, uh, explosion, um, you can see it from the videos. It's pretty, uh, breathtaking. And uh, it was felt uh, in northern Israel and in and and in Cyprus. So that shows the the degree of which um, this happened. And um, obviously, it's understood that this was not any like a strike. Obviously, not an Israeli strike or anything like that. Um, but uh, it's become kind of an issue in Israel in terms of the Israeli response now. The Israeli government offered, I believe, to send uh, emergency assistance to Lebanon. The assistance, as I understand right now, Eli, it's being facilitated through the United Nations, through Nikolai Mladenov, special coordinator for the Middle East peace process. Exactly. So that's obviously a good thing. And um, what's been customary in Tel Aviv is that every time there is a, uh, let's say, tragedy, City Hall... Um, the front of City Hall will light up with some kind of a symbol or flag. Um, this was the same when we had the uh, the awful terror attacks in Paris a few years ago. And so uh, yesterday night, uh, the flag of Lebanon 
actually lit up on Tel Aviv City Hall, and it stirred a bit, uh, quite a bit of controversy, um, to say to say the least. Yeah, I mean, there there's controversy also from both uh, within Israel and also from uh, from people in Lebanon and, and other commentators. We can talk about both sides of this. I mean, the Lebanese perspective, I think, from I don't want to cast. Uh, Lebanese people as monolithic in any way, or to say that there's one Lebanese opinion on this, but to the extent that there were people who disapproved of this, um, you know, Israel and Lebanon have a history. They have a present also. Uh, technically, they're still in a state of war. Uh, there was the 1982 Lebanon war and the subsequent 18 years of Israeli occupation of southern Lebanon, the 2006 Lebanon war. And also we had even, uh, was it last week or a week and a half ago, we had that incident on the Israeli border as well. We had uh, on Israel's Lebanon border and Hardov. There are still tensions between Israel and Lebanon, especially related to Hezbollah. People have questioned the, the appropriateness of this given, you know, I, I don't know if I agree with this point of view, but given the amount of destruction that has been leveled in Lebanon by wars between Israel and uh, different parties in Lebanon. Do they want Israel's sympathy? You know, it, it's it's a question that's been put out there. And it personally, fully supportive of the gesture. Not also, it's not a just. We should distinguish that this is not like a government uh, of Israel decision. It's the municipality of Tel Aviv. And I think it, it's well, like it has a well-intentioned gesture. We're not not talking about trying to just put, if you can, put the political uh, element aside and talk about this as a tragedy um, where there are a lot of people, as you said, homeless and people missing and just a, a show of support. I'm not saying that I agree with that point of view. As voiced by certain people in Lebanon, I, I understand the framing of it. And yes, it's not from the Israeli government in Jerusalem. It's not from the Ministry of Defense. I mean, if they projected a, a Lebanese flag on the Kiryah, maybe that would be different. But I, I get the sentiment, even if it's not something I agree with in, a, in its entirety. I understand why people might think that way about this. Sure. And I also, I mean, I, I, I can see that. And I also, there were some pretty disgusting statements that came out of uh, the Israeli right. Um, but at the same time, um, I think like Amit Segal, a very well-known journalist, posted a picture of the flag and said that peace will come when a square in Beirut is colored in the Israeli, has the Israeli flag on on display. And I thought that was also a, a pretty, like, a, a powerful point. And I can see where that, um, that, that's coming from. And also I can just see that in, in, um, especially with the, the rejection that you're talking about of certain elements, or I'm not, I know you're not talking about one opinion in Lebanon, but the rejection of even Israeli, uh, like condolences that are being sent. Um, especially when we're talking about something that isn't a political, uh, it's not like a political event. It's just, it, from what it seems, it's just a, uh, like a, a tragedy and an awful, awful uh, explosion that, that occurred. I understand that the point by Amit Segal, I don't think that's really even appropriate though at this point. I mean, the, 
center of the conversation really should be what can be done to help Lebanon. I mean, I'm not talking about the center of the conversation here. Like we're saying, this is a point that was made by the Israeli journalist Amit Segal. It's just like, this isn't something that I would think to post in the middle of this tragedy. It's you also wouldn't think that a quote-unquote enemy country as biggest like uh, like would be on one of its like biggest cities would put the flag of that country on like like that's also something that would not be expected right and lots of sure and and if there were if there were a you know the indian flag were projected on city hall in islamabad or karachi you know maybe the narrative around it would be like look at this great gesture for peace you know, sometimes the way that Israel is talked about in this context is different. Um, it might not necessarily be even-handed or or fair, but it just like right after this explosion happened with Beirut still uh, in ruins, the way I read that comment, because I saw that it was like, here's another way for Israel to say, look, look how we're, you know, ahead of the, the Lebanese, look how we're ahead of the Arabs, you know, we're, we're willing to make this gesture, but you're not like, it's not the, the point right now. Sure. Okay, well, maybe we'll let's turn to something where we where, where we actually fully are in agreement. And that's both of us, I think, we we agree that the remarks by Moshe Feglin, the head of the Zeut party, uh, if it still exists, I don't know if the Zeut party still exists, technically, um, the remarks and the statement that he came out with were completely disgusting. Do we agree? Yes, that's something that it doesn't even merit that much conversation, but we should share for the benefit of our audience. First of all, explain a little who Moshe Feiglin is and what he said about this disaster in Lebanon. So Moshe Feiglin, a former Likud MK, uh, who started his own party, Zehut, in 2015, he is a right-wing MK who's known for his extreme views, especially when it comes to the Palestinians and the Arabs. Uh, but his party did, was publicized for uh, mostly uh, the fact that they favored legalizing marijuana. He was supposed to be the surprise of round one of Israeli elections uh, recently, but then he the surprise of the election was that he failed to pass uh, the threshold. Um, so He's still a player in the Israeli political uh, space, but not n- not one of uh, major significance. And what he, he he posted on Facebook a really bizarre, uh, even for for his standards, I think it was a bizarre post where he called the explosion in Beirut a spectacular pyrotechnic show, and he celebrated and. S- just completely like appalling, really crazy. Like from my perspective, like he said that today is Tubaav, which is the Israeli Valentine's Day, pretty much. It is a day to rejoice and a sincere and great thanks to the Lord and all the geniuses and heroes who organize this marvelous celebration in honor of the holiday of love. Like literally celebrating... Uh, the explosion, like really, really disgusting to see. I mean, it's just like beyond, beyond belief that someone that got the vote of, I, I think it was, it was just over uh, almost three percent of Israelis. Feiglin framed it in the context that uh, also of this unsubstantiated theory that this was actually a weapons depot that blew up. By the way, uh, one that was sort of 
almost hinted at by our president, uh, Donald Trump, uh, when he suggested that the warehouse had been bombed, uh, something that upset Israeli officials very much. Um, Fagelin said that, like, you don't really believe that this was uh, just a messy fuel store, that this uh, that this was just yeah, an accident. Th- exactly. So, you know, he's operating on this conspiracy theory. And then again, as you said, celebrating something that has cost many people their lives and many, many, many more people their homes and injured many people. But I have to say, for, for anyone who, who's familiar with Fagelin, this shouldn't be that surprising. I mean, his party... And he is on the record supporting uh, ethnic cleansing or of the Palestinians from the West Bank, or as he describes it, I think, as incentivized transfer. His party made more headlines because of their stance on marijuana legalization and these kind of libertarian positions and actually attracted a lot of votes from young people in Israel. Uh, it's kind of disturbing that people were willing to set aside his extreme views towards Palestinians, towards minorities in order to support him because he was the pot legalization candidate. I hope after this, he is uh, completely sidelined and, and, you know, left outside of the mainstream. But, you know, you can't know for sure. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah I agree. And also, he even uh, tried to like, kind of walk back on his remarks and almost apologize um, using the what you mentioned about uh, he, he had misunderstood the situation and thought that it was definitely like a Hezbollah uh, weapons depot of sorts. Um, but I don't, I don't think that does anything to really help, help his case after the original remarks. Um, but a, a much more mainstream and relevant politician, uh, also had, uh, remarks about, uh, not about the attack in particular, but about what we were debating earlier, the, the flag, and that's a Vigdor Lieberman. So yeah, he actually said that the, that what the, what the Tel Aviv municipality did was pretty much treason. Gida, the word in Hebrew, just betrayal, um, which is something pretty astonishing. And then he tried to make the point that, that when Netanyahu, um, get, offers, uh, aid, he's praised. Um, and then at the same time, people are against displaying of this flag. I didn't really understand the point that he was trying to make there. But uh, again, it's pretty uh, from someone who's in the opposition. This is kind of, I think, kind of just emblematic of Lieberman's sort of authoritarian flair, which again, just like Faglin made headlines for his marijuana legalization stance during the recent uh, stream of elections. I think Lieberman kind of got recast, I think improperly recast as maybe a liberal or a Democrat, uh, someone, small d Democrat, someone uh, fighting for liberal values because he positioned himself uh, against Prime Minister Netanyahu. But we have to remember who Lieberman is. He does like to talk in terms of treason and traitors and punishing people who aren't loyal to the state. One of the central planks that his Yisrael Beitenu party has supported is a loyalty oath to the state of Israel. He supports uh, the transfer of Israeli Arab towns into a Palestinian entity instead of keeping them as part of Israel, so stripping these people of their Israeli citizenship. He's talked about beheading Israeli Arabs. This is also kind of straight out of the Lieberman mold. Not really that surprising. Sure. And also he likes to capitalize on every opportunity to outflank Netanyahu 
uh, from the right. And I think he sees this as an opportunity. He always challenges Netanyahu on uh, issues such as like annexation. Well, why haven't you annexed already? Or uh, issues such as uh, the Bedouin village of Khan al-Ahmar, which uh, Netanyahu promised uh, to, uh, uh, what is it, to, to evacuate or to destroy the actual village, and he hasn't done that yet. So any chance uh, Lieberman has at making himself seem like the true right wing, he'll take, and I think this is also another um, kind of attempt at making himself appear uh like he's representing the true Israeli right. Um, but I don't think people will buy that. Again, this is someone who takes pride in their personal friendship with Vladimir Putin. So that gives you a sense of their attitude toward what we would consider maybe to be liberal democratic values. So that that's Lieberman for you. Again, it's, it's upsetting to see this is a former government minister, uh, you know, Fagelin might be a bit player in Israeli politics, someone kind of at the margins. But as you, as you mentioned, Eli, Lieberman is considered in a lot of ways to be mainstream. He has a real following and constituency in Israel, and he's held uh, fairly high-ranking positions, and he has aspirations, frankly, on the premiership. All of this is why I think at the end of the day, it's actually kind of a good thing that the Lebanese flag was projected on Tel Aviv City Hall, that they did this display because, yes, it's symbolic. And I understand the perspective from some people in Lebanon who don't agree with this, but there needs to be some humanizing of the other. And and flags in particular in Israel have kind of a history as, as a political issue or something that is capitalized on to cast people as treasonous or, or disloyal or even as a security threat. I mean, uh, one of the, the first military orders that was issued in the West Bank uh, after 1967, when, when Israel took the West Bank from Jordan, uh, was a ban on the display of what they describe as flags or political symbols, basically meaning the Palestinian flag and the display of the Palestinian flag at recent uh, rallies against annexation, for example, and against the nation state law last year. That's been leveraged by Prime Minister Netanyahu and other right-wing politicians as a way to cast uh, the the opposition and, and democratic activists as being uh, opposed to the state of Israel and, and um, as treasonous. Um, and even in, in 2018, there was a, an amendment um, it didn't get very far, but there, there was an amendment uh, or, or draft legislation introduced by Likud M.K. Anat Berko to ban the display of flags from uh, what they describe as any hostile entity. Uh, so I think the standard was any any entity where they wouldn't display the Israeli flag, you can't display their flags. So that would include Lebanon, for example, or any of the other Arab states that are formally at war with Israel. Um and that any rally or demonstration where the flag of a hostile entity is displayed, that rally would be uh, considered a riot by the government. Now, of course, this legislation didn't get very far. It wasn't passed into law. But the fact that this is something, you know, coming from a member of Knesset, 
of the Likud party, even though there are hundreds of pieces of personal legislation introduced, and, and this is one that didn't get very far, I think it still says something, again, about the way symbols of the different Arab states are, are viewed in Israel. So I think this is something that could go a long ways towards normalizing that and Israelis thinking about their neighbors differently. Yeah, I I agree. And I think that um, this kind of connects, interestingly enough, to what's going on uh, with the Israeli government currently. And we spoke about it uh, last episode about uh, the possibility of another round of elections. Um, and it's interesting to see also how the Israeli opposition, the current opposition, has changed. And Lieberman, I think, back to what Lieberman said, I think his remarks are a reminder of who he really is and what he represents. It's kind of, as you mentioned, it's hard because uh, now he's considered such a opponent of Netanyahu and his party is very involved in the anti-Netanyahu protests. Um, so it's... Uh, it's a reminder that there are still these uh, divides in the Israeli opposition and a reminder um, what Lieberman actually uh, represents. Um, and where the thought of another round of elections is not that far-fetched. We mentioned it before, but by the end of August, if there's no budget uh, passed, no budget agreed upon between Likud and blue and white, it's almost a sure thing that uh, elections will be around the corner. And Netanyahu seems like he's already shaping um, and getting ready and preparing for that, trying to incentivize the ultra-Orthodox parties uh, to get ready for elections by offering a, uh, packages, financial incentives for uh, ultra-Orthodox uh, schools, yeshivot, um, and so we'll pretty much know by August 25th, which is the budget deadline. And Gantz, obviously, and Blue and White want the budget to be a two-year budget because that would ensure that Netanyahu uh, would have to uh, go forward with their rotation agreement that was signed where Netanyahu transfers power over to Gantz uh, after the first, uh, the first year and a half. Um, but Bibi... Uh, is obviously against this. Uh, Bibi is he's also in the midst of the, the the court cases, and with protests, he wants to find a way to uh, secure uh, his his reign and his continued uh, premiership. Um, so, uh, if he can avoid signing uh, this multi-year budget and keep it to a shorter, whether it's a uh, a matter of months or a one-year budget, then he can keep um, his options open to go to snap elections, which is pretty much, uh, I mean, a budget is the easiest way to go to snap elections, pretty much. So that's why this is so important, and we'll have to follow closely in the coming weeks. If you haven't listened to our previous, uh, one of our previous episodes from last week, where we discussed this uh, in greater detail, the possibility of a fourth election. I've also written for Israel Policy Forum's blog an explainer on some of the potential outcomes of this. I mean, Netanyahu could probably stand to benefit in some ways from this because the opposition is fractured now. 
he may lose a couple seats for his Likud party. There, there's going to be some gains possibly for parties to his right, most prominently Amina. Uh, but on the whole, the, the right-wing block benefits from this more than the center-left block to the extent that it exists, which it really doesn't. And that's the thing with the opposition. The opposition in Israel is not a cohesive block. People are in the government, parties are in the government because they agreed to sit together. They might not agree on everything, but they agree on a certain set of objectives or priorities, and they've agreed to be a, a block. People and parties are end up in the opposition just by dint of the fact that they didn't make it into the government, not because they agree on anything necessarily. So, I mean, there really isn't anything that binds Avigdor Lieberman to Ayman Oda, other than I guess maybe they don't like Benjamin Netanyahu, but beyond that, they are worlds apart. Yeah, that's for sure. For sure. And uh, just a, one last point is that, uh, as you mentioned, more votes uh, possible for right-wing parties. And even if Netanyahu were to lose a few seats for the Likud, um, we talked about this time and time again uh, in pre- during previous elections that his goal, which he has yet to reach, he got closer to it in the last round of the election, is getting to that 61 uh, seats that are comprised of the ultra right wing and the ultra uh, sorry that are comprised of the ultra orthodox parties and the right wing parties um in order to uh potentially give him immunity from the legal proceedings and i think that is still on netanyahu's mind and the last thing i want to say is gantz is in a position where elections pretty much represent the end of his uh, political career after folding uh to netanyahu um, he, he, his supporter base has pretty much collapsed. He hasn't in none of the latest polls has he been over, uh, 10 seats. Um, and Lapid has cemented himself as, I'm not even going to say a contender to Netanyahu yet, but as the only real, uh, option, uh, in terms of, uh, a leadership alternative. And so Gantz definitely doesn't want these elections. So, uh, a lot of things working in Netanyahu's uh, favor, but he still has a, quite a ways to go uh, with everything going on in Israel today, from the protests to his 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 court cases um, to dealing with coronavirus, passing this budget. Not an easy way forward, but. As both of us know, uh, Netanyahu usually finds finds a way to get things done. So we'll see what happens on August 25th. Yeah, I mean, you have to remember as you look at these protests, as you look at slipping numbers in terms of public favorability for Netanyahu and for his government's handling of the coronavirus, his loss is not Merit's gain or Yeshatid's gain necessarily. So that's just a key thing to keep in mind. And with that, uh, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. You know, we'll keep thinking about Beirut, uh, keep watching what's going on there and, and thinking about the people of that city. And wherever you are in the world, stay safe, stay healthy. We hope to catch you next time.